Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning, beginning at verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. This is the word of the Lord. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? I don't know about you, but I always get a bit confused between the difference between uh, tax evasion and tax avoidance. It's not one to get confused over. I know that one is illegal and the other isn't. I'm pretty sure that it's evasion that is unlawful and avoidance is lawful. But as a Christian... And I should say, as a Christian who at one point in their career was devising and implementing pay and benefit schemes for companies which saved them and their staff a level of tax, I struggle with the question of what is good tax planning and what is effectively abusing my role as a citizen. What is my responsibility to ensure that money is available for healthcare, for education, for roads, for benefits? or even for defense. It's tremendously complex. And regardless of what job you do, you will have to make decisions each year over what you do or don't declare on your tax return or on your expense forms to your organization or in respect of your grant allocation. It's a complex question. When does good stewardship become a relinquishing of your duties? When does it turn to dishonesty? If you happen to have overstayed at a car park uh, by an hour and find to your joy that you haven't been ticketed, should you go back and pay for another ticket? If you're a global internet firm, is it ethical 
Or is it wise to minimize your taxation liability by basing your headquarters in a low-tax country? Where do you put your savings? Where does the investment in your pensions go? Do you look for the best return or the most ethical investment? And how do you really know what an ethical investment is? I don't know where you sit on this question, but I'm guessing that as in Jesus' time, there are varying views here today. Back in his time, this was a topic of conversation that would have flowed easily. It would be a little bit like a conversation here in Britain about the weather. And the groups that we see Jesus with today are setting him up with a taxing question to which Jesus responds with a question behind their question. A taxing question and a question behind the question. So first of all, the taxing question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Simple question, right? Well, no. Because it presents a dilemma. I don't know if you remember the poll tax or the community charge riots some years ago. Well, this was far worse. You see, the Jews hated these taxes, not just because we all hate to give up our hard-earned cash, not only because the rate they were expected to pay was too high, or because what they got in return was insufficient, but Caesar's tax was hated for very good reasons. The Romans had no right to invade their land, they felt. They had no right to tax the Israelites for living on the land that had been promised them by God. Paying this tax was not just insult, it was blasphemy. It effectively said that the Romans had triumphed. It said that their God was subservient, that there was someone else who was sovereign. So, verse 13, the Pharisees and the Herodians came to Jesus to catch him in his words. They'd set a trap for him. They set him a taxing and a brilliant question. It was their attempt to catch him out for good, to put an end to him once and for all. This man who had entered Jerusalem like some kind of king, who was received by the people with adulation, this man who had overturned the temples of the money changers in the temple courts, this man who had pronounced judgment on the religious leaders. This was their time to get back at him. So we have an unholy alliance. The Pharisees, the popular nationalistic Bible teachers... And the Herodians, a bunch of political compromisers. These are people who would normally hate each other. And yet they join forces over a common enemy. And that enemy is Christ. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? A yes would side with Rome. It would suggest that God is not the only person who has the right to rule over his people. It would align politically with the compromise of the Herodians. But Jesus would lose his popularity ratings. He would lose the goodwill of the people and the Pharisees would be seething. A no, on the other hand, well that might please the people, but it would mean that he would be sent to the governor and proceedings would start against him in the court of Roman law. His crime would be treason, the punishment for which was death. 
You see how Jesus is presented with a taxing question built on an either-or assumption. He's presented with an exclusive option. Pay taxes and acknowledge, uh, or acknowledge God's kingdom and his sovereignty. Or deny the authority of the pagan empire and acknowledge the authority of God. Jesus' response, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's, fits with the teaching in the rest of the Bible that God is sovereign. And he is the one who establishes human governments. That we have a duty and a responsibility to fulfill the role of obedient citizens under the authority of our human governments. Although recognizing a greater authority behind that government. In other words, to faithfully pay taxes is an act of worship. But we don't obey in everything and anything. Do you remember Daniel and his friends who are deeply enmeshed and complicit in the administration and legislation of a pagan government? And yet they don't compromise their obedience and obligations to God. And when they're commanded to bow down in worship to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, then they recognize the ultimate sovereignty of God. And they refuse to accept the authority of a human government of which they are a part. And a few years later, Daniel does likewise. He's appointed as chief administrator over the whole kingdom. And yet, when he's forbidden to pray to his God, he continues on regardless. He recognizes the authority of his government in the context of a wider call to love God with all he is and not to worship other gods. Honesty, integrity, and candor in the workplace, in the political sphere, and in our finances is key. We are subject to the governing authorities in politics and in work. But those authorities are equally subject to the sovereignty and the judgment of God. If you're struggling where to, with where to draw the line on a particular issue, then please talk with a friend. Talk with someone who is here today. I'm afraid I cannot give answers to every question, nor would I deign to do so. But that's one of the reasons why we encourage people to be involved in home groups. Little groups throughout the week where people come together to say, this is what I'm struggling with. Will you help me? Will you pray for me? Will you point me again to scripture so that together we can discern what is right? Be accountable to someone. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But then we come to the question that sits behind the question. You see, we could stay here and reflect on a, on a sermon about the ethics of paying taxes and reflect on who we serve in our workplace and in our finances. But that would miss the point of what Jesus is saying. You see, so far we've worked just at the surface of this dialogue. But in his answer, Jesus asks a question behind the question. He asks the question that they should have asked. You've come to me with a question about how we, God's people, relate to authority. But if you were really sincere in your faith, the question is how, as the people of God, 
do we relate to the eternal, the divine authority? You see, long before you get to the question of how you relate to Caesar, is the question of how you relate to the King of Kings. Long before you ask the question of how you relate to the tax authorities or to the authorities in your workplace, is the question of how you relate to the Lord of Lords. So, verse 15, Jesus says, Bring me a denarius, a coin, and let me look at it. You can imagine him twirling the coin round in his fingers. Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Well, of course, Jesus knows the answer. He's not stupid. The portrait is Caesar's. The inscription, well, the inscription read this. Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side it read, high priest, a son of a god. Can you imagine the offense that would have been taken for that coin to be in and around the temple? Of course it's Caesar's. And you can, all, you can almost imagine the Herodians and the, the Pharisees spitting out his name as they thought again about how offensive this was. To a people that had honored the Ten Commandments, telling them not to make any graven images. To the Jews for whom only the high priest could enter the holiest place in the temple. To the people of God for whom the only divine one was the Lord Almighty. This was despicable. Well, it's Caesar's clearly. So give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. Send this filthy stuff back where it came from. And give to God what is God's. What does he mean? Well, in our um, translation of the Bible that we've heard read, it doesn't really help us because it talks in verse 16 about a portrait Whose portrait is this? But the Greek word is icon or image. The coin bears the icon, the image of Caesar. And what belongs to Caesar? Well, give to Caesar. But whatever bears the image of God belongs to God. So what bears the image of God? Well, everyone there would have known that verse in Genesis. That God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What bears the image of God uniquely in all of creation is you and me. It's humanity. This is the glorious truth of this passage. The only one stamped with the portrait of the image of God is you and me. And if I bear the image of God, then I belong to God. In one sentence, Jesus has trapped the accusers with their own question. So let me ask you this. Am I, are you, giving to God what is God's? You see, here we have a call to follow and to be wholehearted in our worship and our following of God. How do I relate to the divine authority 
and the ownership that God has over me. You see, if I recognize that I bear the image of God, I recognize his right to ownership over me. That has huge implications. Firstly, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior and Lord, that means that you're effectively lost property. You're owned by a God who you choose not to recognize. Life is a contradiction, a living contradiction. You're made in his image. You're made to worship him and to give yourself back to him, yet you don't accept the only way back to him which is through the cross of Christ. But if you're sitting here today and you do know Christ as your Lord and Saviour, if you've accepted that you are the property of someone else, then I have to ask you, is that the reality of your experience? Do you live in your workplace when you're faced with uh, doing your tax return? perhaps in front of your TV or your PC when no one else is around, do you live as someone who's the property of another? You see, if that's the case, then I belong to God. I don't have the right to decide what kind of character I have of how to use my time, my energy, or my money. God has the right to make those decisions and to call us to obey. What does that look like in practice? Well, how do you approach a call of God on your life? Is it one of just many possibilities? One of many possible choices for your career? How do you deal with Jesus' teaching that you struggle with? Or you may even disagree with? Do you put it to one side? Or do you humbly, humbly obey? How do you deal with unforgiveness in your life or repeated patterns of sin? How do you respond to the call of Jesus to lay down your life as he laid down his for you? Who is king and lord over your life? What does it mean to submit, recognizing that you are his, his possession, bearing his image, and that your life is to be given back to God, who gave everything for you. You see, friends, the power of this passage is that we are not our own. We were bought at a price. And his claim on us is now twofold. Firstly, as Jesus makes clear here, we belong to him. And we should be given back as an offering of ownership to God. But secondly, we've been bought at a price. It's not very PC language these days, but the Apostle Paul refers to himself as a slave of Christ. It might be translated servant of Christ in your Bible. But it's doulos, it's slave, owned by Christ. You belong as a slave to the living God. I am not my own. I am owned by someone else. That could be a terrifying thought 
if it were not for the fact that our master, our owner, is also the one who says, call me father. It would be a terrifying thought if I were just a slave and not also a friend and a son and, or a daughter. It would be a terrifying thought if we didn't know the character of our father, the one who sees lost property and will leave 99 in order to search for that one, who will come running out of the house in the most undignified of manners to reclaim you and me, his sons and daughters, even when we're lost and without hope. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. We've been bought at a price. We are made in his image. We are his. His claim on us is twofold. Give to God what is God's. Amen.